Hey there, Kampai Podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's episode. This Kampai Podcast episode is part two of a discussion between Rhonda McGill, PerformLine's Senior Director of Client Success, and Kimberly Monte Holzell and Courtney Hayden from Goodwin, as they take a deep dive into recent marketing compliance enforcement actions and share their advice for getting ahead of regulatory scrutiny. Listen as they discuss what dark patterns are and some examples a notable enforcement action against a large organization for engaging in dark patterns, and tips for avoiding dark pattern compliance issues. Thanks for listening and enjoy. One of the other things, the areas that I think has become um, very front of center of mind. And as we hear more and more things from the CFPB is around dark patterns and um, folks kind of getting into the conundrum and getting stuck <laughs> and not able to get out of whether it's emails or whatever, but um, just knowing that there's so many um, opportunities to um, for dark patterns to occur. Could you talk to our um, folks a little bit about Um, some of the potential pitfalls with um, dark patterns and maybe some enforcement actions that have occurred um, in the last several months. Sure. Okay. No, I was going to say whoever wants to jump in. Go ahead. I'm about to say whoever wants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to just do an introduction to the subject and then Courtney can speak to the enforcement matters. Um, I think that this is nothing new. This is something that we've seen from the FTC and the CFPB for many, many years. And there's been a particular focus on um, you know, particularly whether the consumer believes they have signed up, they know that they have signed up and affirmatively authorized um, the opening of an account or the beginning of a service. Um, and there's been, you know, numerous enforcement actions over the years, and they keep getting more and more frequent, um, alleging that a financial institution or a company, not that they necessarily tricked the consumer into signing up, but that um, the flow was perhaps so seamless that they didn't understand what they were authorizing. Um, Or perhaps the consumer did have a good opportunity to read the terms and conditions, but a very important term about the cost of the service or um, what rights they were giving up to their data was buried on page 11 of of 50. Um, And the terms are presented in a link on your mobile phone and that's just not something that anyone's going to read. And so oh, been, who reads this? <laughs> right. And, and, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's everyone's responsibility to read and understand what they're signing. But um, I think there's a line where we're, the CFPB and the FTC are trying to draw where at a certain point, the, the consumers really do need to understand the terms. And at the very least, they need to understand that they are signing up for a service just to begin with. And then they can look at the terms maybe later. Um, so uh, with that, Courtney, do you want to discuss some of the recent enforcement actions on this? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Um, yeah, I think you can tell how interesting a topic this is, given that Kim and I both tried to jump in at once on this one. <laughs> um, yeah, and there, yes, there has been a good amount of activity in this space over the past year or so. Um, also not surprising because just to intro the subject here a little bit further before jumping in and diving into the, the uh, you know, a couple of particular enforcement actions here in uh, September. So September of 2022, the FTC had actually issued a report um, 
appropriately titled Bringing Dark Patterns to Light, where Mm -hmm. they focused on four separate dark pattern tactics um, that they were going to continue looking into over the past year. And that's kind of the impetus for some of this um, enforcement work that we're seeing. Um, One one of those um, dark pattern tactics that they identified was misleading consumers and disguising ads. So pretty much what Kim was just describing. Um, and examples of, of, of that type of um, kind of tactic, so, so, to, so to speak, is you know, ads that are designed to look like independent editorial content that actually aren't, or um, comparison shopping sites that rank certain items of a particular type of product, um, but it's actually ranked based on compensation that the companies have paid to that website. Um, so making it appear neutral, like a neutral ranking site, when it's actually not a neutral ranking site at all. Issue with like a lot of lead generators. Right. With, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, a, another type of like website tactic that they've identified is, is countdown timers that make the consumer feel rushed into making a purchase by feeling like they only have, you know, two minutes and 45 seconds left to press the buy button um, yeah. or whatever the whatever the product is that they're seeking to obtain. Um, the the other identified area that the FTC noted was um making it difficult to cancel subscriptions or charges. Um, And then a third item is what Kim also alluded to, which is burying key terms or um, certain junk fees into customer disclosures. Um, And then the last one is um, tricking consumers into sharing data. Um, The FTC identified this as a huge area of concern. and just as a kind of tidbit here, the FTC had previously alleged that a um, a smart TV maker had unfairly enabled a default setting that allowed the company to collect uh, shared viewing activity and provide it to third parties after only providing um, purportedly a very brief and arguably buried disclosure that consumers might have missed. Um, but Kind of with with that in mind, um, I'll mention a recent enforcement matter from just a few months ago. Um, in June of this year, the FTC had filed a complaint against an e-commerce company for enrolling consumers in a subscription um, without their consent, and then by making it challenging to cancel. So right there, you have two of those identified tactics from that it had previewed from its September 2022 report. Um, it alleged the company enrolled the consumers into these, this subscription service without obtaining any sort of consent or sufficient consent while um, using arguably or alleged manipulative user interface designs that the company um, designed to deceive consumers into signing up for auto-renew subscriptions when the consumers were not fully aware of what they were doing. Um, this this matter is pending, so we'll have to kind of see where it goes and how it navigates um, through the system. But um, this, you know, I think the main takeaways here are, again, what Kim had mentioned, which is, you know, ensuring that you have like clear and conspicuous terms, disclosures, um, fee disclosures in particular, um, easy cancellation processes for various subscriptions that 
don't require you to um, jump through many hoops in order to actually effectuate uh, cancellation or get so frustrated with the cancellation process that you perhaps just walk away from it altogether. Um, so they want to make that a little bit easier for consumers. Yeah, I, I think I've been victim of that. <laughs> I, I had I had an instance where it was like, I just couldn't even figure it out. So it took me like two months of relieving the frustration before I started digging into it again. So it could happen to any of us. So. Absolutely. I think we've all been there at some point. Yes. It's like, I'll just pay for two more months. So I don't have to yell at my, my phone again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Kim, did you want to add anything into that from a compliance um, standpoint? Yeah, well, there's a whole host of stuff here. So where to begin? Um, I think the first thing is, you know, on your sign-up screen, making sure that it's very clear and conspicuous that the consumer is affirmatively checking a box and not just clicking continue and not realizing what they signed up for. Um, the FTA, FTC has put out um, guidance on what they believe to be a clear and conspicuous disclosure um, and acceptance process. And that does include some sort of affirmative action, like a, a, a checkbox or something like that, affirmative acceptance by the consumer of the terms. Um, if you have terms that are linked through a hyperlink and, you know, you're just scrolling through on your phone, it's going to be pretty difficult to read that. But um, they do have some standards around making sure that that link is clear and conspicuous. For example, we um, always use, uh, you know, you've seen the blue font um, instead of black to show that there's a link there. Uh, there's some guidance around the placement of the link. It has to be above where the consumer actually accepts it. And so you would normally see, um, you know, a checkbox saying, I agree to the terms and conditions, maybe the terms are linked, and then a proceed button right below that. Uh, so everything has to sort of make sense to the consumer so that they understand that they're actually signing up for the service. Um, in addition to that, there are some types of uh, recurring payments that require additional disclosure. So, um, for example, if you pay with your debit card, um, Reg E has uh, certain requirements for authorizing recurring payments on a debit card. Um, those do not apply to credit cards, uh, but I think, you know, from a fairness perspective, uh, there should also be um, a good understanding that the consumer is signing up for recurring payments on their credit card. How much is it going to be? Uh, when is that going to occur? How many payments are they going to authorize? And how can they cancel those payments? Um, or even just replace the, the payment method. So under Reg E, the consumer has an, uh, a right to cancel their payment authorization. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to cancel the subscription, but maybe they want to change uh, from their debit card to a credit card to pay for it. They do have a right to stop the payment on their debit card. Um, in addition, the NACHA rules for ACH payments, there are very specific uh, content requirements for authorizing a bank transfer by ACH. So if you've got a subscription or a recurring payment um, and you have an individual consumer that's authorizing you to take payment monthly or weekly by ACH transfer, there's very, very specific um, content that has to appear on the authorization. And um, if you can't prove that the consumer authorized it, um, then that can be very easily charged back and reversed. Um, and there's really not much you can do to dispute the reversal if you can't produce proof of that full authorization. Um, and wow. you know, and uh, when, when you do it through the ACH system, the technology system, um, there is a 60-day limit on reversing the ACH. But there's also a separate um, 
mechanism where um, the consumer can go to their bank to be the charge. And then the consumer bank can ask for that authorization for up to two years after that authorization happened. And if you can't produce it, even if it's, you know, one year and 11 months later, if you cannot produce that authorization with all the requirements in it, you do need to refund the consumer. So it has a really big potential for losses, both to businesses and also to the banks. Um, the banks are technically the ones that are on the hook under the NOSH rules. And, you know, certainly the bank could try to go after the business for not having collected authorizations. It's probably a breach of their banking contract. Uh, but we've seen instances where, where uh, businesses have gone bankrupt and the banks can't collect uh, or they're just, you know, a general unsecured creditor in the bankruptcy proceeding. Um, and so banks have lost lots of money because their customers haven't been collecting good authorization. So whether it's your customer or whether you're the bank that's, um, you know, facilitating the payments, it's really important to get that process uh, you know, really uh, compliant when you're authorizing subscription payments. Um, the other thing too is uh, for cancellation, uh, California has a really strict law on subscriptions and cancellation. Um, this isn't law everywhere. It's it's a very unique law in California and it just doesn't exist um, in the rest of the country yet. But I think it does provide a really interesting model that, um, you know, A, you do have to comply in California, but everywhere else, um, if you don't follow those uh, formats, perhaps it's not a direct violation of the state law in the state where this happens. Um, but I think it does provide a roadmap for the FTC to argue that you've unfairly treated a consumer if you haven't allowed them to cancel. Um, so I think, you know, perhaps California is a gold standard and you don't have to do absolutely everything that California tells you to do in every other state. Um, but I would offer that up as a good model for best practices in other states. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so before we get off dark patterns, you either you want to add anything else in there? Um, I Yeah, I, I think I do want to make one more note about junk fees because that's been such a big focus. Oh, um, yes, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in the financial services sector in particular, we've seen um, really three types of fees that have been attacked in particular. Um, and Courtney, feel free to chime in on any of these enforcement actions. Uh, but the CFPB put out some guidance pretty much attacking three different types of fees. One is credit card late fees. Um, and there's some rulemaking proposals swirling around to reduce credit card late fees. Uh, currently, they're set by Reg Z for consumer credit cards, but um, I think there's further action going on to reduce that even further. Um, the bigger thing that we've been seeing, um, because this has been generating private class action litigation, FDIC, OCC, and CFPB actions, is um, overdraft and insufficient funds fees. Um, this has been going on for a couple of years, and I think you know the, the regulators have been um, aware of it for some time, but the plaintiffs' lawyers have really been aggressive and just going from bank to bank to bank and attacking the um, the terms and conditions of the overdraft program and saying that they were not clear on when the overdraft fee or the insufficient funds fee would be charged. Um, and they've been really successful at it, even where I thought that the deposit agreement was pretty clear. Um, they've been incredibly successful in generating really expensive class actions for banks um, on terms that could even have a shred of ambiguity. Um, and the most common type of uh, claim that we see is where there's one transaction that generates multiple fees. Um, 
let's say that you authorize a, an ACH payment and um, it's for $100 and you have $75 in your account. Um, that would probably be returned the first time for insufficient funds and you would get an insufficient funds fee. Um, and maybe you would expect to get one fee. That's fine. Um, it's probably in your terms. But what people don't expect is that you can actually get up to three fees. And the reason for that is because uh, the ACH rules allow uh, the person who's charging your account to reattempt a transaction two additional times if it's been returned for insufficient funds. So on that first attempt ride, $75, um, it's going to be returned. Maybe the merchant's going to try again tomorrow. That's another fee that I can incur. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe they're going to try again the next day. And then maybe that gets returned again as well. Or even if it doesn't get returned, uh, maybe the bank pays it on the third try. And then I get an overdraft fee instead That's of an insufficient funds fee. So you've got these situations where consumers are getting three fees on one attempted transaction. And, um, you know, banks are aware of this and they've attempted to explain this in their deposit agreement. Um, but the CFPB plaintiff's lawyers and the FDIC and OCC have all started to say, well, this is a little bit aggressive. Um, and so what we're seeing is a lot of banks reducing their practices for charging these fees. So we've seen a lot of the, uh, a lot of banks just do away with insufficient funds fees and only charge when there's overdraft that's actually paid um, because, you know, there's there's a payment for using money that you don't have that's reasonable. Um, but the banks are starting to do away with or reduce um, the frequency of um, insufficient funds fee. We're also just seeing banks limit the number of fees that can be charged. Um, we have definitely seen instances where... Um, someone just mismanages their money or maybe it's an older person who hasn't been able to take care of their affairs and they just generate you know, thousands of dollars in fees. And um, the CFPB has definitely been on those types of complaints and viewing that as unfair behavior. Right. And I, and I would just note, um, kind of seizing on Kim's point about there being a lot of class action activity in the space, it's always the case that whenever there's a you know, federal regulator consent order in particular, or state regulator consent order settlement with a company about a particular issue. You know, plaintiffs' attorneys typically look at that, and you can expect, for the most part, class action litigation to follow. That also happens with respect to other similar financial institutions or companies. So, you know, if there's like a consent order um, between the CFPB and Company A, that doesn't mean Company B is not also not at risk for class action litigation. Um, plaintiffs' attorneys absolutely look to other companies that might be doing similar type of work or activities to see if there might be um, something to, to bite off with respect to that company too. So just generally being aware of um, larger, more significant consent orders and settlement agreements with any federal or state regulator would um, assist your company to, uh, to manage risk or at least be aware of it. Absolutely. I would add one more thing to that, which is that the plaintiff's lawyers often beat the regulators to it and alert the regulators to the issue. So where the plaintiff's lawyer might be going down the line of banks, uh, the FDIC will take notice that a bank under their supervision is subject to this action and they'll jump on it. And that's not fun. <laughs> not fun at all. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compai Podcast. We've got several resources for you on dark patterns and recent enforcement actions that I will drop in today's show notes, including a previous podcast featuring Sandia Brown from the FTC on dark patterns and two content pieces around enforcement actions in the first half of 2023 and the marketing compliance insights we can learn from them. As always, for the latest content on all things marketing compliance, you can head to content.performline.com. And for the most up-to-date pieces of industry news, events, and content, be sure to follow Performline on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.